0: Thank you guys for leading us and gals. If you didn't get any notes, there's some right up here at the front. You can make the long walk of shame and grab them from the front here. Oh, some in the back too, so you can sneak to the back if you need to. Not as shameful. So let me just start with a, uh, a confession. Not really a confession, more just an admission. Um, I am completely aware that when somebody says to you, hey, you should come to Wednesday nights, we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines, that most of you think, oh boy, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to, you know, look forward to that. Um, I know it it sounds kind of like a, a root canal with no pain medicine, but I think that's partly... Because of the way we approach the issue just from a sort of a big picture perspective. So let me start out with just a made up illustration that uh, I think will help you make sense of the importance of what we're about to talk about. Let me tell you about two boys. We'll call them Bob and Rob. Okay. So let's start with Bob. Here's Bob. You ready? Bob. His mom wants him to take piano lessons and he doesn't want to. But she makes him, and he hates it, but she doesn't really care. She makes him, and he doesn't like to practice, but she doesn't really care that he doesn't like to practice. She sets a timer up on the piano every day, and he has to do it for an hour and go till it dings, and he is forced to do it, and his attitude toward the piano is sort of pictured up on the screen, just face palm on the keys there. He doesn't like it. He hates it, and the more that he's forced to do it, the more he resents it, okay? So that's Bob. Now let's talk about Rob, okay? Rob's dad takes him to a trans-Siberian orchestra concert. And there's rock and roll, and there's lights, and there's smoke, and there's all the stuff, and there's flames shooting up everywhere. And for whatever reason, Rob is not so much fascinated with the electric guitar or the the powerful vocals. He looks sort of over on the side of the stage and he sees this guy just hammering away on the piano and Rob says, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. I want a piano, I want to take lessons, I want to learn, I'm going to get on YouTube and watch instructional videos, I'm going to go home, I'm going to lock myself in my room, I'm going to learn every Trans-Siberian Orchestra song, I'm going to download them all on on iTunes, and I'm going to play them and play with them until I get them down perfectly. Nobody's begging him to do it, nobody's asking him to do it, nobody's sort of cajoling him or forcing him to do it. He does it willingly and gladly, and he gives himself to it joyfully because... He sees the end goal. Oh, Bob, go back to Bob. Put Bob back up. All Bob can see is middle C with his face right in front of it. And he's just miserable. And he's just, he, he can't, I mean, that's all he can think of. He can't see the end game. All he can see is the little timer. And he's got 56 more minutes in his hour of rehearsal. That's all he can think about. His vision doesn't extend anywhere beyond that. Now go back to Rob again. Rob has that etched in his brain. And he thinks, that's what I want to do. And he gives himself to it completely. And you know as well as I do, the outcome for those two young men, imaginary men, uh, made-up young men, is going to be completely different. What does this have to do with spiritual disciplines? Most of us, when you hear the word spiritual disciplines, think Oh, that's when we're going to have a series of lessons on all the things I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian. And I'll be honest with you, when I pick up a book on spiritual disciplines, that's the first thing that pops into my head. Oh, great. This book's going to make me feel guilty. This book's going to show me all the things I'm not doing that I'm supposed to be doing and show me how big of a loser I am and how I need to get my act together. This ought to be a delightful read. The problem is we look at it as something that we're forced to do because we don't see the end game. We don't see the goal out there of why we do the things that we're going to talk about. So over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about specific spiritual disciplines and what they are and why they're important and how you do them. But tonight, sort of the big goal for the night is just to sort of throw the goal out there and say, this is what you're shooting for. I don't want this to be a an eight-week study where you leave and every Thursday for the next two months you're grouchy because you think, I'm not doing enough, Dad dadgummit. Preacher made me feel guilty again on Wednesday night. I want this to be a study where you leave and you say, this is something that I get to do. I have the privilege and the opportunity to do because you see the end game out there. And so that's sort of what we're going to try to talk about tonight. What are spiritual disciplines? Most books that you pick up on spiritual disciplines don't ever define them. I I was surprised by that. I went through my office and looked at all the books I have on this topic, and almost nobody ever stops to explain what they are. They all just sort of assume you know what they are. The closest thing I found to a definition was in Don Whitney's book called The Spiritual Disciplines, and this is how he sort of defines it. The spiritual disciplines are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. The habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. Okay, a couple of thoughts there before we move on. First of all, they're habits. Okay, There's something that in your life you have to do enough so that it becomes second nature. That's one of the reasons we call these things spiritual disciplines. They take discipline. They're not easy for anybody. They're not easy for your pastor. They're not easy for your Sunday school teacher. They're not easy for Dr. Whitney up on the video earlier. They're not easy. So we call them spiritual disciplines. And he starts off saying you got to form these habits in your life. When he says experiential Christianity, what he's saying is this is sort of how you experience your relationship with Jesus, right? It's not just about praying a prayer and then trying to be a good person, but this is how you experience a real living relationship with Jesus. And I didn't have you fill any of this part of the definition in, but it's super important. He says, they've been practiced by the people of God since biblical times, meaning you and I don't have the burden, thankfully, of inventing spiritual disciplines. Like you don't, you don't have to do that, and if you're excited about it, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say, well, you know, your list of spiritual disciplines is fine, but I'm going to practice the spiritual discipline of golf, and I'm going to go to the golf course. And that's going to be how I connect with Jesus. Or it's dove season, and so my spiritual discipline for the next few weeks is hunting dove. Or, well, you know, my sp- you don't get to do that. These are the spiritual disciplines. We're not just pulling them out of thin air, as we're about to see. We're going to the scriptures to see what does God tell us to do. What have the people of God done in the Scriptures? And we're looking back at history and we're saying this is what God's people have done throughout the years, throughout the centuries to grow in their relationship with God. So let's just think for a minute. Take your Bible out. Nothing really to fill in here. I just want you to look at some of these passages as we think about what's the biblical basis for spiritual disciplines. We'll just go from beginning towards the end. Look at Genesis chapter 5. This is the famous genealogy where everyone dies. And you know that in all genealogies, everyone dies. But this is the one that points that out to you. Every person listed. He lived this many years and he died and he died and he died. And then you come in verse 21 to a guy named Enoch. And it says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And you see this same idea all the way throughout the Bible. We're not gonna look at other passages, but you can trace it all the way through. This idea that we walk with God. That's how our relationship with God is described over and over and over again, the way that we walk. It's not described as a sprint. It's not described as a crawl. It's described as a walk, meaning you're not going to get there quickly, but you're going to keep making progress. You're not going to go as hard as you can and then just flame out, but you're just going to keep pressing on and keep pressing on and keep pressing on. This idea that he walked with God is, is one of the earliest pictures we have of what does it mean to have a relationship with God and to practice uh, the things we're talking about here with spiritual disciplines. Flip over to the right and look at Ezra chapter seven. We're skipping over a lot of ground just to hit the high notes here. Ezra seven. If you see the Chronicles, keep going. If you hit Nehemiah, turn back. Ezra seven ten. If you're looking for a life verse, this would be a great one. Ezra 7.10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. That's a great progression. I'm going to set my heart, my affections, my desire, the core of who I am to study God's Word. We're going to see the next two weeks... That's the foundation of all spiritual disciplines. We're going to take one week on all these different disciplines, but we're going to take two weeks to talk about Bible intake. And that's what we're reading about here in Ezra's life. He set his heart to study the law of God. He made that commitment, right? He didn't just sort of wake up one day and say, well, am I going to study the law of God today or not? Well, I don't really have time, kids are already screaming, got to get them out the door, got to do this. No, he made a settled determination in his mind, I am going to do this. Like he made a resolution in his life, I am going to study the law of God. He set his heart to do it, to study it, and to do it. Meaning, it wasn't just an academic thing, but it was something that changed him. God used this study to turn him into the kind of person God wanted him to be, and he set his heart to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. Meaning the things that he's learning, the things that he's studying, the things that he's taking in from God's word don't just stay with him, but he's passing those things on to other people. Okay? I gave you the whole book of Nehemiah. You can just flip to the right, and I'll just point out to you chapter 1, verse 4 to verse 11. Is Nehemiah praying and weeping and mourning and fasting for days? For days he does it. And then I will point out to you if you look at chapter 2, the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then he tells him what he's requesting. Right there at the beginning of the book, you have a, a picture of a man who prays without ceasing. That doesn't mean you never stop praying, but that means there's specific, set aside, devoted time where you're giving yourself to prayer, fasting, the other spiritual disciplines, and it's also a spontaneous thing in your life. It's not just scheduled in routine where you check it off a box, but it's part of who you are, and it's something you do throughout the day. And you see that all the way through Nehemiah. A great place to study if you've never studied the Bible, you don't know where to start, you could start in Nehemiah and you could just look for all the places that he prays and make a list of them. There's tons of them. Over and over and over and over again, he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. Some of them are really long, some of them are really short. Some of them last for days, some of them don't. Some of them are just him talking to God, some of them are him leading the people in prayer. But he's praying and you see that discipline on display in his life. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Okay? We watched the short video. Dr. Whitney's talking about meditation. Don't just read, but you've got to slow down and meditate. We'll talk more about that. What I want you to see in Psalm 1-2 is that his delight, this blessed person, his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. Meaning, if we're comparing Bob and Rob, we're not talking about Bob with his face smashed on the keys. We're talking about Rob who spends all night practicing and rehearsing because it's his passion and he sees the end game for it. This person described in Psalm 1 delights in God's law. You don't have to guilt them into it. That doesn't work anyways. You know it and I know it. He doesn't have to be guilted into it. He delights to do it. She delights to do it. Look at Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6. You know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. I assume if you don't, you can read Daniel chapter 6. In verse 10, we read that when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. most important words in that passage in verse, verse 10, as he had done previously. He did not get in trouble and find himself in a pickle and then say, God, I'm going to come talk to you about this, and I need you to bail me out. This is just par for the course, routine for his life. Why? Because he's disciplined, because he set his heart to do this, because he's committed himself to do these things. So he's done these things previously as part of who he is. Matthew chapter 6. We're getting close to the end of this list here. Matthew 6. Just point out a few verses. We won't read all of it. If you look in verse 2, this is Jesus talking, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you give to the needy. Not if you decide to do that, but when you do it. Verse 5, he says, when you pray. Verse 6, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. Over and over and over again. Verse 16, when you fast don't do it this way verse 17 when you fast don't do it this way but do it this way he's assuming all the way through here that we're going to be people who give and people who pray and people who fast that's just going to be normal part of our lives flip over to the right 1 Corinthians chapter 9 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. No specific disciplines mentioned there, other than the fact that Paul's saying generally you've got to train and you've got to be disciplined right? Athletes don't become athletes on accident. They set out to work, and they work hard. And Paul says, in the same way, they're looking for a physical wreath. I'm looking for an imperishable wreath, and I've got to be disciplined so that I don't, I don't uh, preach to others and then find myself disqualified. A similar idea if you flip to 1 Timothy 4, Verse 7 and 8, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We're going to come back to that passage in 1 Timothy 4. You can just sort of hold your spot there and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. That's just a quick overview, biblical sort of fly over the top, get the lay of the land of spiritual disciplines and being committed to certain practices and God's people doing that in the scriptures. Some of you want to know, I want the whole list of what spiritual disciplines are because you're like me and you like lists and you like to check things off and you want to make sure you don't leave anything out and you got all your T's crossed and your I's dotted and all that sort of stuff. So let's talk about that for a minute. There's a guy named David Mathis, and he's written a book called Habits of Grace. Our staff and our elders just read this book, and uh, the first time I read it, I didn't like it a whole lot. We read it again when I, I went through it with the staff, and I liked it a little bit more. Habits of Grace. And he breaks them down, and he says there's three categories of spiritual disciplines says there's a bunch of disciplines that fall under the category of hearing God's voice. That would be hearing his voice in scripture. That would not be just sitting and trying to sort of download information and follow your gut, but listening to scripture. That's hearing God's voice. And he puts several things under that. He talks about having God's ear, meaning we can talk to him. We can pray to him. And he puts several things in that category. And then he has a third category, called uh, Belonging, that should say belonging, my mistake, belonging to God's body, being part of the church. And so he's got different disciplines listed under these, but he says these are sort of the three big working categories that you hear from God and then you talk to God and then you're connecting with God's people. And I think it's a, a helpful way to break them down. It's not the only way to break it down. The guy that we watched on the video just a minute ago, Don Whitney, he's got a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, And in his book, he lists 10 disciplines, and there they are. Uh, We're going to talk about most of these at one point or another. Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence, and solitude he lumps together, journaling, and learning. And so he says there's 10 of them. So you're like, okay, is there three, or is there 10? And just to complicate it more, Dr. Whitney uh, has written a couple of other books He's written one called Simplify Your Spiritual Life. And you're going to love this. It has 90 chapters. That sounds real simple, right? 90 different things. And uh, to make you feel a little bit better, he's not saying you need to do all of these 90 things every day. He's just sort of giving you some ideas of how you might practice spiritual disciplines. Then he's got another book. We're going to talk about this one as well called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. And he lists 13 in this book. Okay, so 3, 10, 90, 13, my point to you is there is no list, okay? I cannot give you a list and say, these are the ones. Different authors approach them differently. In your mind, they may fit together a little bit differently, uh, but we're going to cover the big ideas over the next few weeks. Why do we need to practice spiritual disciplines? Let me give you a few reasons before we uh, wrap up. Why do I need to do it? Okay, what's the end game? Number one, the book of Psalms assumes that God's people will practice spiritual disciplines, it's just an assumption. It's so much an assumption that very rarely does the book of Psalms detail you need to do this, you need to do this. It just assumes you will be doing this and you will be doing this. You will be coming to God's word for truth. You will be talking to him in prayer and responding to him in worship. You will be meditating on God's word. You will be hiding God's word in your heart. You will be doing all of these things. And I've given you a few places you can look on your own, but it's just an assumption This is how we connect with God. And the reason the book of Psalms is so important is that of all the books in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms describes this is how God's people connect with God. This is how they experience him. It doesn't just happen on its own, but these are the ways that they experience God and grow in relationship with him. That's the whole point of the book. And throughout it, there's just an assumption that you're going to be doing certain things taking in God's word, responding to him in prayer, etc. Okay. Secondly, and sort of a similar idea, Jesus assumes that you're going to practice spiritual disciplines. We've already looked at Matthew 6, so I don't know that we need to look at it again. The point there is pretty obvious. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, this is how I want you to do it. There's really no discussion of, hey, I'd like you to think about doing these things. He just assumes that we're going to be people who do these disciplines, who practice these disciplines. Number three, this is a big one. We practice spiritual disciplines for the purpose of godliness. For the purpose of growing and becoming more like God. Don Whitney says it this way in... uh, in his book on spiritual disciplines. He says, there is little value in practicing spiritual disciplines apart from the single purpose that unites them. That purpose is godliness. So I'm just going to tell you right now, if you can't set that in front of you as the goal and see that it's valuable and good and desirable, your Bible reading is going to be boring as all get out. And your prayer life is going to be filled with daydreams. And you're not going to memorize any scripture. And you're not going to be committed to evangelism. And you're not going to want to serve God's people. You're not going to want to do any of the things that we could talk about under the heading of spiritual disciplines. You've got to sort of have the vision out there to say, the reason I'm doing these things, the reason I'm committing myself and setting my heart to practice these things is that I can become more like God. Less like the wretched sinner that I am, and more like God, I can draw closer to Him and become more like Him. Secondly, I say secondly because that idea and this idea go together. I know we're in the middle of a list, but these two kind of go together. We do it for godliness, and we also do it so that we can enjoy God. And I think that's where a lot of us miss the the purpose. We miss the goal. We hear a lesson on Bible reading and prayer and memorizing Scripture and meditating and all that stuff, and it just sort of becomes this weight that we think, ugh, I have to do that. But I just want you to see how the psalmist talks about God and his relationship with God. Look at Psalm 63. Just think about how different this is than how most of us think about our relationship with God, and think about... If this was how you approached your relationship with God, how much differently your life would look when it comes to the spiritual disciplines. Okay? Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power. In your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with or as if it was full with fat, rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful, there's that idea of emotion again, with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings i will sing for joy my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me almost every line in those verses describes somehow that he's seeking god he wants to be close to god he wants to know god he wants to talk to god he wants to worship god he wants to listen to god he wants to enjoy god just over and over and over nowhere in there does he say Oh, I guess I better do my five minutes of Bible reading today. Well, I guess I better work on those memory verses again. Well, I guess I... There's my phone alarm. I guess that means I have to meditate on Scripture again. But this is Rob from the original illustration, committing himself to being in Trans-Siberian Orchestra. It's almost saying, I'm in with you 100%. You are the best thing going. You see, the same idea if you turn a few pages to Psalm 73. These are my favorite words in the entire book of Psalms. Not so much because they're always true of my life, but because I want them to be true of my life. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? Meaning, there's no one or nothing in heaven that I want other than you. I don't want heaven for heaven's sake. I want heaven for you. I get to be with you in heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? The answer is the way it's written in the Hebrew no one. There is no one else my heart is set on but you in all the heavens. And there's nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. Like you're it. Go to heaven, stay on the earth. I don't care where I'm at. You, God, are the one thing that I want more than anything else. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28. For me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist is just saying, and he's been wrestling with some heavy stuff in Psalm 73. I have got to be with God. I have to. Whether I'm on the earth or in heaven, it doesn't matter. There's nothing that comes in front of that. I have got to be with him. It is good. It is best for me to be with God. So we do these things for godliness. We do them so that we can enjoy God. And I'm going to skip Lucas that quote just for the sake of time. And I'm going to move on to the next point on your outline. Okay, this is not necessarily a biblical idea. It's just common sense. Nothing great happens without discipline. Nothing. So there's a book by a guy named Kent Hughes. I'm going to mention it to you in just a minute. And uh, Kent Hughes says this, We will never get anywhere in life without discipline, be it in the arts, business, athletics, or academics. This is doubly so in spiritual matters. All right? If you want to be great at anything in life, you can't dabble in it you got to go all in. And he gives some examples in the book and I'm just giving you the the names that he mentions in the book. We'll put these pictures up, okay? He's old school guy so he picks Mike Singletary of all the football players you could pick. He picks Singletary. He says, "What made Mike Singletary great? Was that was it that football was his hobby?" No, it's that football was his life. It was his passion. Ernest Hemingway, why was he such a great writer? It's because he scribbled in a journal on his spare moments? It's because he gave himself to perfect that craft. Michelangelo, how do you become such a great artist? You doodling on notepads during meetings? Is that how you become a great artist? No, you study it and you practice and you learn and you do it. Churchill, how did he become a great politician? He gave himself to it. Edison, how did he become a great inventor? He gave his life to it. He's just looking at quote-unquote great people saying they didn't get great by accident like they gave themselves to what was most important in their lives and he's saying if it's true for those people why would it not be true for us why would we think that we could be great christians when christianity is just a hobby that we dabble in you can't do that nothing great happens without discipline mark dawson is a good example of that um Mark is a really good piano player. And it's not that he's just some weird prodigy who can do anything he wants without ever practicing. It's that I don't know if he was Bob or Rob, but he spent a lot of time practicing the piano. And he may have had some facepalm moments on the keyboard, but he practices, and he practices, and he practices. I asked Terry as we were getting ready for the funeral last night. She played in the the funeral, another great pianist. And I said... uh, You're a really good piano player. You can just sit down and play. How many days go by where you don't play the piano? What do you think she said? I play every day. Every night. I play every night. Not a day goes by where I don't practice. And when you do that, and you do it over time, and you set your heart to do that, and you commit yourself to do it, then you can do, you know, silly things like we're about to do, where I say, open the hymn book, pick a song, and Mark walks up, and he just plays a song. Like, you're not born with that. You practice, and you're disciplined, and you do it over and over and over again. Nothing great happens without discipline. The last idea is this. This is important, too. Not necessarily a Bible verse attached to this, but it's true. Discipline leads to freedom. We think it leads to slavery, like, ugh I'm miserable. I have to do this. But the reality is that discipline leads to freedom. And let me just give you a few obvious examples of this, okay, just to continue our piano illustration. If we put up uh, on, the, on the piano here Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and I just sort of said it's open piano night, you can come up and play, any one of you or myself would be free to walk up here and make a racket on the keys. But not all of us, in fact most of us, would not be free to come up and to make it sound good or sound Right? You're not free to do that. You can bang away and make all kinds of terrible noise, but you're not free to play that song. Another example, one of the most popular shows in my house right now when I can get it off cartoons and Disney kids is American Ninja Warrior. And I don't like watching this show with uh, my wife, and I don't like watching this show with Emma. I really like watching this show with my little girls. Because I watch it with my little girls and they still watch it and every time they do something and somebody mess up, messes up, they look at me and say, do you think you could do that? <laughs> and I say, oh yeah, I could do that, easy. Yeah, well, you could do it, you could do it. You know, the pe- jumping with the pegs in your arms or running across things or what all the crazy stuff they do. And my wife and Emma have, you know, called my bluff by now and they know, no, you couldn't do that. Not in the middle. You are not free to finish the course. You can't do it because you don't exercise like those people exercise. One more example just from the world of sports. Steph Curry. A lot of you have heard of Steph Curry. Steph Curry, in case you didn't know, is about one inch shorter than me. So if he stood up here, we would look awful close. I have my boots on, so maybe I'd look you know, way taller than him, but we're pretty close. And I have about 10 pounds on him. And I promise you it's not 10 pounds of muscle, but I got 10 pounds on him. So we're really close to the same size, right? Like physically, same height, same weight, and he can do things that I cannot do. Dribbling the basketball, shooting the basketball, passing the basketball, dunking the basketball, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Doing things with multiple basketballs. If you've ever watched his pregame dribbling warm up, you can get on YouTube and find it. And he's dribbling two balls at a time between his legs and behind his back, and he's throwing passes while he's dribbling. And it's amazing. You look at that and you say, well, he's the same size as I am. Basketballs aren't that heavy. I know how to play basketball. I know the rules. All, you know, I know all about it, but I haven't been disciplined in that area, and I haven't given myself to those practices, and the result is I'm not free to do what he does with the basketball, nor are very, other, uh, very many other people free to do what he does with the basketball. So look, the big idea sort of we're throwing out tonight is you've got to see the end goal, before we even talk about Bible study and prayer and fasting and all these other things we're going to talk about, you've got to have the end goal out there, right? And you've got to sort of reshape the way that your mind thinks. And in your brain, you've got to realize nothing great happens without discipline, and discipline leads to freedom, right? If I'm going to be the best follower of Christ I can be, it's going to take discipline. It's not just going to happen, and doing these things isn't going to enslave me and bind me. It's going to set me free. Like you, I'm going to wake up in 30 years and I'm going to be able to do things and talk to people and serve in ways that I'd never be able to do if I hadn't committed myself and set my heart to these disciplines. And you got to see the end goal is not just so that we all look at you and say, well, golf clap for you. You're the best. You're so faithful in that. But the end goal is that you become more godly. You grow closer to God. And you grow in your enjoyment of God. I promise you, there is no one who sets their heart to the spiritual disciplines and makes these habits part of their life who rolls over in 30 years and says, I'm more miserable in my relationship with God than I ever have been. And I promise you, almost to a person, when I talk to people who say, man, I'm frustrated and I don't feel close to God and I just feel disconnected and I feel like God's not real and he's not part of your life, part of my life, I say, how's your Bible reading? How's your prayer life? Are you doing the disciplines? Are you practicing the disciplines? Well, I've been really busy. Well, I've been sick. Well, I've had other things going on. Well, these disciplines will not make you miserable. They will not ruin your relationship with God. They will get you to the point where you can truly, in a way that you've never understood or imagined, enjoy your relationship with God. So, let me just mention a few books for those of you who like to read. This is the only week I'm going to do this. I did it every time, every week, last week. I'm just going to do it once uh, in this study, okay? Okay. Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. This is the book where he has 10 different disciplines. This is kind of the like the gold standard. If you want to read about spiritual disciplines, that's the book you buy. And uh, I already mentioned to you earlier, Don Whitney's the real deal. He does have a book called Simplify Your Spiritual Life. It does have 90 chapters. They are a page or less. They're really short chapters, so you can see the book's not super long. And This book is way more hands-on and practical, meaning when it comes to Bible reading, how do I actually do it? That's sort of the focus of this book, and it's very helpful. He has a book called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, which we're going to spend the night talking about church as a spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual discipline. It's an indispensable spiritual discipline, so that's a good read. Uh, There's a book... Uh, that I've already mentioned tonight called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. This is the one that our, our uh, staff and our elders just read. And because I like you guys so much, I found an extra copy of this book. I want to make sure I don't give you my copy. I give you the extra copy. Um, yeah, that one's mine. I found an extra copy of this book. So one of you on your notes has a blue smiley face next to this. Who got it? Who has a blue smiley face? Carol. Got it. There you go. Pass it back to Carol. I had one extra copy from when we studied it, so Carol's the big winner. Congratulations. And then uh, just two more to mention to you. This is by a uh, husband and a wife, Kent Hughes and Barbara Hughes, Disciplines of a Godly Man and Disciplines of a Godly Woman, and they're very, very similar. Um, I hate to ruin it for for you, but Like, you could read either one, and they're about the same, other than the cover on the outside, and I guess they thought we can sell more books if we have one for each, so two books instead of one. But uh, they're both really good, and uh, they do, I said they're similar, but they do sort of uh, have specific application to men or to women, and so um, if you wanted to, uh, to read in a focused direction on spiritual disciplines, that would be a good place to go. So there you go. That's week one in the books. And next week we are going to talk about, start talking about the spiritual discipline of Bible intake. And we're going to spend two weeks talking about that, what's involved in it, uh, what does the Bible itself say about that, how do you do it, why is it important, all those good questions.